Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. My name's Nadia Ekbal, and I'll be hosting today's show. This episode covers the past, present, and future of open source software, adopted from my Medium article, We're in a Brave New Post-Open Source World, which we'll include in the show notes. In this episode, I'll describe the origins of open source within the free software movement, its rise to popularity, thanks in no small part to Git, and today's golden era of open source. But there are several serious issues that threaten this open source renaissance, and in order to maintain our current ecosystem, I'll discuss the problems we'll have to solve and the path we need to chart moving forward. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. You can send any feedback to softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com. With that, let's begin. So we've seen that open source had a special role to play in helping startups launch and scale, but that's only half the story. Open source changed startups, and then startups turned around and changed open source. There are two startups in particular, GitHub and Stack Overflow. Together, they launched a new chapter for software technology. And the decisions we'll make from here will determine how the next five to 10 years of software unfold. But to understand why, we have to start at the beginning. So we're gonna start with the 1970s. In the 1970s, everybody was writing custom software and building custom computers. But in 1981, IBM launched the IBM PC, a personal computer, and they brought hardware to a mass market. Software came along for the ride. Business people looked at IBM and they saw an enormous market opportunity. Venture capitalists realized that software was less risky than hardware with better potential upside. So Sequoia Capital funded Oracle to make database software. IBM hired Microsoft to write MS-DOS, an operating system for their PC. Suddenly, the idea of free software seemed insane. Software was a commodity. If you can make millions of dollars charging for it, why wouldn't you? Writing free software became a political act of defiance, and a strong counterculture rose around it. If you wrote open source, you weren't like Oracle or Microsoft. People who wrote free software believed in its potential as a platform, not a product. These programmers gathered on mailing lists and on IRC to write code together. They put it up on websites for free. Anybody could use and modify the code as they wished. But every project was different. After all, these weren't flashy commercial operations. If you wanted to contribute code to a project, you'd have to track down one of the maintainers on their preferred channel. Maybe that was IRC. Maybe that was a mailing list. Maybe it started with a private email introducing yourself. Maybe you couldn't figure out who to contact at all. Not only did projects not have a standard way of communicating, but they also didn't have standard developer tools. Open source projects use version control systems to keep track of changes that everybody makes to the code. That way, developers avoid repeating each other's work or making changes that conflict with one another. These days, if you hear version control, a lot of people think Git, but there are plenty of other systems out there, including SVN and CBS. Each one works a little differently, and developers have preferences on which version control systems they like to use. So if you wanted to contribute to a project, you had to figure out who to talk to and how to talk to them. You had to do a bunch of legwork before you could write any code at all. In the late 1990s, things started to change. A bunch of organizations formed the LAMP stack, consisting of Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP. With that, you had a full set of open source developer tools. Now anyone could build software for nearly free. Big companies still thought open source was a joke. Steve Ballmer called Linux a cancer, and he said people needed to pay for software properly. Bill Gates wrote a letter in 1976 denouncing hobbyists for pirating basic software, reminding them they were stealing. In this letter, he said, Who can afford to do professional work for nothing? 
What hobbyist can put three man years into programming, finding all bugs, documenting his product, and distributing it for free? But startups took an interest in the LAMP stack because they realized it was one-tenth the cost of proprietary software. If they used these free tools, they wouldn't have to raise as much money to launch their business. In other words, open source had found its market. As more people started using open source, developers needed better tools to manage their projects. One company, VA Research, saw an opportunity. They were selling personal computers that came pre-installed with Linux, the project that formed the L of the LAMP stack. VA Research figured that if more people used open source, it was good for business. So in the summer of 1999, a couple of employees decided to design a collaboration tool called SourceForge, which they released in the fall of that year. SourceForge became a standard place for developers to work on open source projects. They could host code on SourceForge for free, manage their projects, and track bugs all in one place. But one piece of the puzzle was still evolving. That was version control. So you had Linux, the open source operating system, which was growing in popularity. But Linux was using a proprietary version control system called BitKeeper to manage its code. Although Linus Torvalds, the original developer of the Linux project, liked BitKeeper, who licensed it to them for free under this community license, plenty of other developers were unhappy with this arrangement. BitKeeper, being proprietary software, had a lot of restrictions on their users. If a, if a developer used BitKeeper on Linux, for example, they weren't allowed to contribute to other version controls, like SVN or CVS, in their spare time. Finally, in 2005, the makers of BitKeeper announced they were ending free support for Linux, citing license violations, and the maintainers were forced to either accept a commercial contract or come up with a new solution. Linus Torvalds didn't like any of the free version control systems out there, so he decided to make his own. In 2005, he released a new version control system called Git. Of the name, Linus joked that he was an egotistical bastard who named all projects after myself, Git being British slang for unpleasant person. It turned out that Linus wasn't the only person who wanted a better free version control system. Other developers liked Git too. It was faster and it was decentralized and it was able to handle workflows from lots of different contributors. It wasn't intuitive though. Git was markedly different from anything else out there and SourceForge chose not to support it. Within a few years, however, SourceForge was facing new competition. Two new collaboration platforms launched in 2008, GitHub and Bitbucket. Both were good products, but there was a key difference. Bitbucket only supported Mercurial as a version control system, whereas GitHub only supported Git. Matt Mackall had announced Mercurial after the BitKeeper fiasco, right at the same time that Linus had announced Git. The rivalry between Mercurial and Git was fierce. But in the end, GitHub bet on the right horse. Linux and other prominent open source projects had already switched to Git, and GitHub made the non-intuitive Git much easier to understand. In 2010, SVN was still the top version control system used in 60% of software projects, while Git was used in just 11%. But today, Git has nearly matched SVN's market share. Mercurial, the version control system that Bitbucket launched with, is used in just 2% of projects today. So GitHub became the obvious choice to collaborate on code. Open source needed, firstly, a standard way to communicate, and secondly, a standard way to manage code. GitHub had both of those. And it even went a step further, popularizing then-new social mechanics, like following other developers and seeing project changes in a newsfeed. Now developers even had a third thing, a standard place to socialize on the web. So finally, the picture was complete. Well, almost. GitHub became this watering hole for people to work on code together. 
What about all these hours of frustration and coding between successful commits? Developers ask each other for advice and share knowledge all the time. Programming books are extremely popular for this reason. Sometimes conversation happens over private emails or mailing lists, but there's no dedicated place to talk about the nitty gritty of code. In 1996, Experts Exchange, piggybacking off the first dot-com boom, launches a way for IT professionals to ask each other for help and network. If you've ever used Experts Exchange, by the way, you'll notice there's a hyphen between experts and exchange. If you're wondering why that hyphen is there, it was originally called expertsexchange.com without the hyphen, until enough people pointed out it could be misread as experts exchange. So they moved to a domain that had a hyphen in the name. Anyway, Experts Exchange had a premium membership model, and they went bankrupt in 2001, following the dot-com crash. Some blamed venture capital. JP Morgan took 51% of the company for $5.5 million in financing, and they made Experts Exchange grow faster than it was meant to. The site still lives on under new ownership today. But the idea was good, and in 2008, Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky decided to launch a more open version of the original site, calling it Stack Overflow. Developers now had a place to ask each other questions and get help, whether it was about picking a new language or a bug that they couldn't figure out. Stack Overflow was so successful that it eventually expanded to a whole new network of Q&A sites, including mathematics, Ubuntu, cryptography, and they called that whole network Stack Exchange. Now developers had all the tools they needed. In the 1980s, they had to use a scattered combination of IRC, mailing lists, forms, and version control systems. But by 2010, they then had Git for version control, GitHub to collaborate, and Stack Overflow to ask and answer questions. Today, it's easier to contribute to open source projects because everybody uses the same set of tools and because many projects are located on one platform. It's easy to figure out who the maintainers are, what other projects they've contributed to, which changes have been made, and which issues are open. Lowering the barriers to entry launched a golden age for open source. In 2011, there were 2 million projects, 2 million repositories on GitHub. Today, there are over 29 million. GitHub's Brian Dahl noted that the first million repositories took nearly four years to create, but getting from 9 to 10 million took just 48 days. GitHub's social mechanics and platform made it easier to find new projects than ever before. That meant many more developers had open source projects at their disposal. Tons of new projects were being discovered. These tools also made open source cool now. Remember how companies and venture capitalists in the 1980s laughed at open source? No longer. Joe McCann reported that in 2014, venture capitalists invested $2.4 billion into open source focused companies. That's a lot of money. And it's safe to say that open source has entered the mainstream tech vernacular. And it's not just pure software anymore. Bloomberg Beta open sourced their investment playbook. New York Times open sourced a style guide. O'Reilly Media open sourced a book. Open source has basically come to mean open information. Some might argue it barely means anything at all. To really drive this point home, here's a funny story. When the free software movement began in the 1980s, they promoted a license called GPL. Over time, other open li licenses joined the scene, including Apache, MIT, and BSD, with various layers of permissiveness. When GitHub started, they didn't promote licenses. Some speculated that GitHub thought legalese would dissuade developers from joining. There is no default license, and that's still true today. By hosting a project on GitHub, you agree to allow people to fork and view your code, but otherwise everything else is subjected to copyright. GitHub's approach worked a little too well, 
because today hardly anybody uses licenses on GitHub, despite calling their projects open source. An informal SFLC study found that in 2013, less than 15% of GitHub projects had a license. The free software generation had to think about licenses because they were taking a stance on what they were not, that is, proprietary software. The GitHub generation takes this right for granted. They don't care about permissions. They default to open. Open source is so popular today that we don't think of it as exceptional anymore. We're so open source that maybe we're post-open source. But all is not well in the land of post-open source. With the exponential rise of open source, comes new challenges that are yet to be resolved. For example, there's an increased workload from drive-by contributors. Because the downside of having tons of people able to discover and use your project is now you have to deal with tons of strangers who feel qualified to express an opinion about your project. Back in the golden days, because there were fewer programmers out there and nothing was standardized, the bar to get involved with the project was higher. But today, anybody can pop into a GitHub project, open an issue, make demands, or say not very nice things, and then disappear as quickly as they came. What makes this more difficult to resolve is that GitHub itself is not open source. GitHub's closed source, meaning that only GitHub staff is able to make improvements to its platform. The irony of using a proprietary tool to manage open source projects, much like BitKeeper and Linux, has not been lost on everyone. Some developers refuse to put their code on GitHub to retain their independence. Linus Torvalds, the creator of Git himself, refuses to accept pull requests from GitHub. There's also concern around using a centralized platform to manage millions of repositories. GitHub has faced several outages in recent years, including a DDoS attack last year and a network disruption earlier this year. A disruption in just one website, GitHub, affects many more. Earlier this year, a group of developers wrote an open letter to GitHub expressing their frustration with the lack of tools to manage an ever-increasing workload and requesting that GitHub make important changes to its product. Another new challenge is that open source projects are becoming productized. The proliferation of open source projects means it's harder and at times downright unrealistic to build sustainable communities around them. In 2008, there were an estimated 18,000 active open source projects in the world. SourceForge was estimated to have 150,000 total projects, both active and inactive. But today, you have 29 million projects just on GitHub. That's 200x what was on SourceForge in just 2008. And what does the supply side look like? The number of software developers in the US alone nearly doubled from 2002 to 2012 to over 1 million. But that pace, 2x, is not commensurate with the exp exponential growth in projects. That data set ends at 2012. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics expects 17% job growth for software developers over the next 10 years. That's quite a bit, but it's still not on pace with project growth. Certainly, many people have learned how to code in the past two to three years, but it's not realistic to expect that new programmers have the technical expertise to make substantial contributions. As a result, while plenty of amateur developers use open source projects, those people aren't interested in or capable of seriously giving back. They may be able to contribute a minor bug or fix, but the heavy lifting is still left to the veterans. And experienced maintainers have felt the burden. Today, open source looks less like a two-way street and more like free products that nobody pays for, but that still requires serious hours to maintain. That's not so different from what happened to newspapers or to music, except that nearly all the world's software is riding on open source. Code is also not above the law. 
So the follow-up to that licensing story is that facing concerns, GitHub started taking a stance on licensing in 2013. Now suggest a license when you're creating a new project. And they created this microsite, chooseolicense.com, to help project owners choose. Stack Overflow is contending with the post-open source world, too. Since 2008, Stack Overflow has been using the Creative Commons CC by SA license for all content on its site. The problem is that CC by SA requires attribution re when republishing content. It also requires sharing that content under a similar license. That makes it not very suitable for getting help on your code. So technically, if you use someone else's code revision from Stack Overflow, you would then have to add a comment in your code that attributes the code to them. And then that person's code would potentially have a different license from the rest of your code. And of course, your average hobbyist developer might not care about the rules, but many companies forbid employees from using Stack Overflow partially for this reason. As we enter a post-open source world, Stack Overflow has explored transitioning to a more permissive MIT license, but the conversation hasn't been easy. Questions like what happens to legacy code and dual licensing for code and non-code contributions have generated a lot of confusion and strong reactions. And companies, too, are struggling to understand the legal implications of contributing to open source projects or even releasing their own projects. Many companies now have departments dedicated to open source, including HP and Facebook. Finally, software development is becoming fragmented. Drew Hamlet wrote a cheeky post earlier this year called The Sad State of Web Development, complaining that developers keep reinventing the wheel by making their own projects instead of building a stable ecosystem together. He wrote, No one can create a library that does anything. Every project that creeps up is even more ambitious than the next. I just don't understand. The only thing I can think is that people are just constantly rewriting Node.js apps over and over. While the actual open source workflow has become standardized, the output has become perversely fragmented. It's so easy now to start new projects that everybody creates their own instead of contributing back to old ones. So instead of, for example, having 100 large open source projects with active communities, we've got 10,000 tiny repos with t redundant functionality. One of open source's biggest advantages was supposed to be resilience. A public project with many contributors was theoretically stronger than a private project locked inside a company with fewer contributors. But now, the widespread adoption of open source threatens to create just the opposite. Looking ahead, standards like the LAMP stack, GitHub, and Stack Overflow did such a good job of popularizing open source that they practically made it obsolete. Just like mobile phones are simply becoming phones, open source software is simply becoming software. That's an incredible win for open source, but it comes with all sorts of new challenges how to actually manage demand and workflows, how to encourage contributions, and how to build anti-fragile ecosystems. We may not feel the burden yet, but winter is coming. In a post-open source world, these are problems we'll all have to contend with. <laughs>